Ash. Um, I hope you are having a, a, a good uh, Sunday. We're recording this on a Sunday and it's in the middle-ish of December. I can't believe we're this close to Christmas and there are still so many packages and shopping left to do that it kind of scares me. Oh, <laughs> Hopefully yeah. please, you're in please. better shape than me. <laughs> no, no, no. You're triggering me already. This is, <laughs> we barely even started. I don't know. Uh, that's a, a TBD for tonight, actually, at our household. So, yes. <laughs> That that yeah, there's always something about um, uh, doing or looking at Amazon or or whatever place you're shopping, and it's like, okay, is this going to make it here in time, or how much extra do I have to pay to make it here on time? We actually did do some shopping in some actual box stores because I wanted to get some stuff actually here, um, and then um, went through their list, and it's like, oh, some really cool stuff I want to get you arrives after Christmas, arrives after Christmas, no. <laughs> It's not fair. Yeah, I needed. I ran out of um, notebooks the other day, and I'm a I'm a oh no habitual <laughs> journaler. So I, I write in a notebook every morning, and I ran out. So I needed to order some more, and I went and I was going to order them on on Amazon because mm-hmm. the closest place I know to buy them in real life would require a subway trip to the middle of Manhattan. And oh yeah, <laughs> I couldn't do that on the, this weekend for reasons. So I just ordered it and uh, they were going to be delivered the next day, but under the uh, buy it now button that said delivers before Christmas. And I'm I, at first I was confused because in my mind, I'm not buying a Christmas present, right? <laughs> but of course that would still be a factor. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to uh, share that they did indeed arrive before Christmas the very next day. There's still hope then, right? <laughs> <laughs> And I, I've got something else. Speaking of things that get delivered, I have I had something else that got delivered yes. this weekend. Uh, and it's we're going to try to get on and off this topic pretty quickly because it's, from my point of view, the most boring topic, <laughs> which is Wi-Fi routers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but there's all sorts of uh, things you could dig into with Wi-Fi routers. <laughs> yeah, I bet there is. There's always a lot of things you can dig into at every point in the stack. But I think for me, like the networking aspect of things is something I would love to be able to leave up to mm. a machine that I can set yes, and forget please. for a decade. I had that with my old... I used to have uh, an Apple Wi-Fi router. It was one of those that looks like a MacBook Pro plug. Yes, I have one right over here. <laughs> yeah, so it was unique back in the aughts because mm-hmm. you could plug in both a printer. Yeah, whatever. I never had a printer back then, but you could very interestingly plug in speakers. Yes. And that was uh, probably for, I don't know if many people, but for plenty of people anyways who had that router, that was your first sort of experience having um, remote wireless audio mm-hmm. like that. And I, I found that that router was... It, it was oddly like one of those routers that I would travel with occasionally when I needed to. I never uh, thought to try that, but yeah, yeah I could one... see it. It's small and compact and it's not like overly bulky with a big antenna. Yeah, I, and I just very rarely would I do that. I, I've heard of people traveling with other things like Apple TVs and whatnot, but every <laughs> once in a while I would need to like set up a Wi-Fi network for mm-hmm. things happening. So uh, yeah, that, that one lasted me a decade before it started kind of falling apart on me. I want to say roughly 2017, 2018 era. Yeah. Cause was that, was it the original um, one? Cause I know there were a couple of revisions. So, um, and I, I, they don't sell them anymore, which, which kind of makes me sad, but yeah. 
Oh, it makes me very sad. So, <laughs> and why does it make me very sad? Because like these sort of, they're the Apple approach to these kinds of things where if you, if you love Wi-Fi routers and mm-hmm. you want to like poke and prod at them, you'd probably hate Mm-mm. the Apple ones. <laughs> But this is why I loved them, because like that one I could plug in and never really had to think about it ever, 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 ever. Now, this leads me up to the next choice I made, which was like at the time being pitched. It was this little startup called Eero. Um, oh, yeah. And it was being mm-hmm. pitched as sort of like the Apple of Wi-Fi routers. And so I, I picked one up and, you know, for a time, it felt like it just sort of worked. And then eventually it kind of stopped just working and one could imagine, I, you know, I live in New York. There's probably things I needed to go in and do um, to kind of figure it out a little bit more. I don't know. But I, I got to this place where I noticed I was needing to reboot the router a few times a week, which is never good. That's no fun. And then um, when I went into the Eero app, I saw that uh, right around the time I needed to start rebooting it all the time, um, you know, so in the interim, Amazon had purchased this company, Eero. So they are now right. an, an Amazon company, which had always made me a bit uncomfortable anyways. Um, but the uh, apparently software updates were only valid retroactively, according to Amazon, for five years from the date of purchase. So that's kind of how I can remember uh, when I purchased this Eero because I mm-hmm. hit the five year mark in September, according to oh, this, no. Yeah, according to the Eero app. And of course, mysteriously, that's right around the time that I'm rebooting this thing all the time. And it's saying we're no longer every time I go in to reboot, it reminds you in big red letters that you're not getting software updates anymore. And uh, I don't know, the whole sort of thing just bugged me. So just a um, little. I mean, this is the device that you're passing your private data through. And if it gets like you don't you don't want need your Wi-Fi router being a security vulnerability. That's kind of annoying, (laughs) to say the least. So there was basically the fact that it was starting to get crafty like that. And uh, also, you know, I, I was getting into a place where so my wife, Ryoko, is kind of on the um, precipice of launching her own small business here in, in mm-hmm. New York. And she's uh, rented space in the building we live in to, to get that going uh, starting next year. And we were going to need uh, to basically, you know, I don't want to pay for like two connections, um, you know, so instead Fair. I was like, well, I'll build out a mesh network because uh, the the other space is like super close to us. So that, that'll work just fine. So mm-hmm. the question, of course, was, should I buy an Eero extender and try and degunk my current Eero? Do I need to invest into a new set of Eros knowing that I'll have to do this again in five years? Mm-hmm. Um, probably. And Amazon wants me to kind of pay monthly for whatever things I'm not totally sure about. Oh, yeah. So anyways, it's just a lot. And I again, like I want the set it and forget it and something that I feel is somewhat trustworthy um, and also can just like handle exactly what I need to be done. Mm-hmm. And I have evidence that my Eero is not living up to that. So uh, instead, I just went with something totally new and I got this uh, uh, to, new to me, uh, mm-hmm. but it's like a an Asus uh, AX um, Wi-Fi set that I got for as part of like a Black Friday deal. And it's just like Ooh. two base stations. And I spent the morning setting it up, but so far so good. It's uh, I can run it up here in the apartment where we're connected directly to the Ethernet, um, but also have one down in in her office space. Uh, and I mean, it didn't take any time at all to set up. So we'll see how it goes over time. But apparently, their um, track record on support is 
um, pr- uh, hopefully more than five years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And also just good, right? So right. Buying, <laughs> buying something from Amazon, like we know, like we will not be getting support in, in any shape or fashion, as far as I know, other than just sending it back in a in a cardboard box. So oh. if it breaks, oh. so instead, I'm just pretty excited about this because again, like um, already in a day, like I just haven't had to deal with a child showing up with an iPad saying. Why is my iPad not on Wi-Fi? And I'm like, oh, the thing. So um, I don't know. I'm pretty excited about it, to be honest. It's like the first time I've ever dabbled in a mesh network. And mm-hmm. um, their their app was like easy and straightforward to get going. And just all everything just felt super easy like it should. So hopefully that stays that way. But we're Fingers in the first crossed, 24 knock hours. Fingers crossed. I would knock on wood. But um, the, the piano that's currently in front of me is not wood. Um yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, it's been a while since I've had like a router that just completely stops, like requires constant rebooting, but there's been a few times, um, on our cable network, um, who knows what, whatever, but, um, there's been like some road work cause there's a whole new subdivision going in across the road. And so I suspect um, that has been interfering with our internet access. So at random times, either throughout the day or at night, you know, we'll lose the connection. And it's, it's so aggravating because I want to, you know, maybe I want to stream something on Netflix or, or, or watch YouTube or whatever. And it's like, now I'm, you know, now I'm stuck. What do I do with, with the rest of my, whatever, you know, go read a book. I actually don't have a lot of books anymore. Cause now I do it all, a lot of it on, on, on a Kindle or what have you. <laughs> so it's like, okay, now what? And so, and that happens just at random times of the day. So if you've been putting up with this for, um, on a recurring basis, rather than just like these one off, you know, every couple of months or whatever happens by accident, I just multiply that frustration and that, that has to be very annoying. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't great. I put up for it with it for longer than I should have, but I think part of it too is when, you know, the only thing that stays wired into ethernet is when I'm here on on my desk, on my Mm -hmm. Mac. So I didn't have to feel that pain moment to moment. And there was part of it too, where it's like, well, most of the time that we're annoyed by it, it's when we're trying to do things like watch Netflix or something. And it, it was, it was obviously a problem that needed to be dealt with, but there's always a long list of things to do. This one finally came around. And I think obviously the, the sort of forcing function with, you know, my wife kind of starting her business and yeah. moving, she's in a space where she really needed a connection. So uh, anyway, so far, so good. I've got one question before we close out IT Mm -hmm. admin corner for the day, (laughs) Uh, which is the most boring corner. Um, But like, sorry, IT admins. It's it's not, uh, I just, for me, I just, maybe it's my most area, biggest area of ignorance. Let's put it that way. So um, anyways, um, you have that, I think they were called Apple Airport Extreme, if I remember correctly. Yes. The one, what are you doing with that today? I'm just super curious why you still have it and what you do with it. Yeah. Um, so actually, so, um, where I live is two stories. Um, it's a split level kind of or top and bottom the router, um, for whatever reason, something in the ceiling, um, really attenuates the, um, the signal in my office. Um, so that was one reason. The other reason is I have this behemoth of a desktop machine over to my right, which typically is my, it's my windows machine. Um, and it's, uh, plays games that are on Mac or Linux or what have you. And, um, when I was in my apartment before I moved to this house, this was totally fine. It was like right next to the, the ethernet connection 
So I didn't have to worry about a wireless uh, connection on it. And this is a custom built machine. So I didn't worry about adding on a Wi-Fi adapter. And so I was thinking, well, the airport, ex- uh, I think mine's an airport express, but still it has an, it has the, the ethernet connection and I could have it extend my network from upstairs and then, you know, give a little bit more kick to the signal down here. And so that's what I was started with. Now to your earlier point about it's, you know, they're no longer being sold and <laughs> it's, it's very obvious nowadays that this is not going to be a workable solution because, um, it's software hasn't been updated in what five years if, mm-hmm. um, so needless to say that did not work well, extending the Wi-Fi. It, it would try to connect. It would never actually finish connecting. So I finally had to give in and buy myself a, uh, wireless adapter for my desktop, um, that has a decent antenna on it. Um, it's a TP link. If anyone's curious, it's worked amazingly well, never had a problem with it. Um, but what I'm using it for now is exactly the next thing that you talked about, which is I have a set of speakers, a set of Yamaha speakers that I had for my desktop. Um, but I also wanted to be able to like, you know, if I'm at my MacBook or if I'm on my phone and I want to listen to some of the music and it works perfectly as an airplay device. So I have it plugged into the airport express. It's registered as a speaker on my network and I can cast to that and get the nice sound. Not, not saying like a MacBook pros speakers are not nice. They are, these are still nicer. They're, they're properly sized speakers and I can just air airplay to those. And it's worked flawlessly for that operation. Extending a network, I wouldn't suggest anymore, but for, as a speaker, if you have a set of speakers that you want to add to the network, still works great for that. <laughs> That's really cool that they're still functional for that reason. And and you're right. Like, uh, airport express was the name of it. Um, uh, now that you mentioned it, I knew it was an X something. Yes. Uh, but yeah, that, that's really cool. And, um, I guess, yeah, I guess I don't know enough about the inner workings of it because when you mentioned, for example, like software not being updated or something like that for a long time, that's certainly a concern. Right. And I think I was worried about that with my Eero. Yeah. Uh, but in addition to that, like, um, the Wi-Fi sort of spec continues to evolve, right? And I think <laughs> yes. that those airport expresses, when they were mm-hmm. made initially, whatever that was, something, something in the, the letter was BGN, I think something like that, maybe. Well, I thought they were always numbers. I, I, I can't remember now, but like, oh, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. 802, something. Yeah. And they always ended with a different number and N yeah. was the new hotness back then. Uh, and I, I think it supported that, but yeah, that was a long time ago. Now Wi-Fi is on to sort of more like software versioned numbers at this point. What are mm-hmm. we on Wi-Fi six? I think there's something Boy, Wi-Fi. I'm showing my ignorance because now I actually rely on the router that my cable <laughs> company provides me and I've never looked into it further because it's worked. <laughs> yeah. And this is the whole thing, right? At some point you want the thing that works because yes. everything you're doing kind of is on top of that. You, I mean, I just don't want to be messing around in that layer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, it's a fair point is like what, um, there is, there were firmware updates for it that you could download. And I did use it as a, as a network extender. Um, before I had moved to New York, we were living in, in a spot that was, it was, it was a decent sized spot, like, um, 2,400 square foot, but it was all a, all a single level. And so you had this, um, whatever the cable company we had, um, its router was not terribly strong. Plus I think we had some interference from like, we were right up against some power lines. And so from where the cable came in 
to where our living space was, especially at night if we were using our iPads in bed, that that was a long reach. And so it was really hard to get a good signal. And so that's why I originally had this Apple uh, Express was to extend that one's signal. And it worked well at the time. Uh, I don't, it, everything matched and it, it got regular software updates and it would say, Hey, your, th- um, your iPhone would kind of, uh, ding at you and say, Hey, your, uh, airport, airport express needs to be updated and you click a button and let it do its thing. Um, but now if you get on, like it says, I'm out of date or I, you know, there's nothing there. And it's like, clearly it's like, they don't make it anymore. It's out of support kind of in your same situation. And it's like, yeah, it's not, uh, <laughs> it's not great for extending the Wi-Fi network. Um, it works fine as a as another device attached to it, but as extending it down here, it's unwise to do that. <laughs> I think of it as like Voyager One and Voyager yes. Two exiting the heliosphere. <laughs> we will not be updating those, Which is <laughs> those really, satellites anytime right? soon. <laughs> it's really sad because, like, to your point about like the Eero, is like the hardware is fine, and it it always kind of raises these thorny questions in my mind. Is like. I know technology has advanced and Wi-Fi has advanced like these things, the the specs that these things ran on. That was the other reason why I realized, oh, this is not going to be the best for my network situation because it was only pulling in the the slow version of Wi-Fi, whatever number that was. Um, And it's like, well, if I'm downloading a game off of Steam, I don't want to have to be sitting here for hours upon hours when my network connection or my cable connection will download upwards of gigabit speeds. Um, and so, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give in and buy it. Um, but like the hardware is perfectly fine. It works. It, it just sits there. It does its job. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't cause trouble. And yet there's, you know, no support for it. Wi-Fi has evolved and, you know, um, it's kind of sad that, that some of these tech perfectly working technical machines get left by the wayside. <laughs> yeah, there, to feel a little nostalgic. <laughs> there's a there's a touching scene in uh in Ant- Disney Plus's Andor that basically is exactly what you just said. Right. I, yeah, I'll <laughs> leave it to the listener to catch up on Andor if they want to, but it's really funny that like that topic gets covered there too. Yes. And it's totally true. I mean, I find that I was going through kind of getting ready for our annual New Year's cleaning. Because we're a half Japanese house, and you have to do all—you have to always be cleaning, but especially at the end, end of the year. <laughs> um, and I found some things where I'm like, "Yeah, these devices theoretically are workable." I had an audio interface, for example, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it—I uh, I looked it up on the vendor's website, and I'm forgetting Native Instruments. Yes, uh, but they uh-huh. EOL'd that one about five years ago, and I, I just didn't even know because I had not been using it for anything. But the device itself would have. perfectly in working order it was a gorgeous little audio interface for its Mm -hmm. time and nothing there should have changed that much but for whatever reason you just the the reality is the only thing that changes as far as i know anyways in that type of situation are the os's involved and they didn't have any drivers since like i want to say mavericks or something so it had been a bit i hadn't checked in a while (laughs) So I ended up getting a new audio interface and that, that's a topic I'm sure for another time. But um, anyways, in terms of some of these devices that are otherwise perfectly fine, but the software doesn't keep up with, you know, itself or its surrounding ecosystem, um, it, it just kind of makes for a world where now I'm kind of stacking up some devices going, right? It feels weird to chunk this out, but there's literally nothing that can be done. I think you it. can use it with, and it's, it's kind of, I don't, it's a little sad. And like I have, um, a whole a whole stack back here of like older devices that is like the device there's no device drivers for it so it's like 
you might get lucky and it might work. Or for example, I still have my windows machine, so I could use it there. Usually I think it's, I'm still running windows 10. So like, I'm not even running the latest version of windows. So I could probably get some of those working with maybe an older driver, but it's like, on my Mac. That's why I actually now have a devoted MacBook for, for my music production is because I don't want to risk the the new version of the OS breaking things until I have a chance to actually validate it. Um, so I actually have it sitting a good version back, um, still getting the security updates, but not messing with like my digital audio workstation, which I use logic pro or any of my plugins because heaven forbid that that I do an update and then all of those break because, you know, Macs and backward compatibility, um, not the, not the fit most, the market leader in that regard compared to like windows. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, it's the, the opposite approach, but it's, right. yeah, it's interesting. You're, you're getting into that space of, um, creative, uh, creative makership, I suppose, where, uh, you, you want to have a machine that is a, purpose-built sort of workstation that is not really kind of there to be the latest and greatest. If it works now doing the job you need it to do, it should work just like mm -hmm. it does a few years later. And you want to move a lot more conservatively on that. Um, I've seen, for example, I know I've mentioned this to you at some time in the past, hopefully not in this podcast, but uh, uh, certainly in work life where I'd seen people running like, you know, OS, Mac OS 9 versions of you know, Photoshop <laughs> yes. or something in their print shops, because mm -hmm. for them, these were, and you know, that was probably a decade ago or so, but still that would, OS 9 would have been ancient even then. Yes. But the thing of course was like, well, no, this isn't like, I'm not, I'm not trying to upgrade my computer because computers are fun. This is the central brain of a machine that I want frozen in time because it prints, you know, business cards. Mm-hmm as perfectly now as it did then, and there's nothing else I need on top of this. Uh, so when you get to that sort of space in creative land, I do think sometimes there is going to be that sort of urge to try to like protect it from the outside yes. world. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned today that you wanted to chat a bit about like something in the creative space uh, around a piece of software that mm -hmm. I haven't thought about in a long, long time. Uh, but it sounds like you use it quite a bit. Um, Logic Pro Logic Pro is yeah. this Logic Pro, by the way, running on said machine? It is running on said machine, um, and it was um, kind of the impetus. Well, not not Logic Pro itself. It was kind of the impetus as to why I decided to start freezing this because um, uh, part of it was when you get back to you know um, Mac or Apple saying, "Oh, we're going to switch from 32 bit to 64 bit," that caused a lot of painful things, and they're further. Re um, restrictions of what you can do in with the kernel and and having um uh, what do they call them kext or kernel extensions running wow. at the same time and a lot of music production stuff plugins or software tend to tended to actually use some of that stuff like some of my audio interfaces love to be in that space and it's like yeah okay maybe i could buy some new ones that don't sit in that space but these work just fine i the 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 auto interfaces i've had i've had for years they work perfectly i know how to use them and so it's like okay i did an upgrade um i forget from which os version um maybe 3 or f maybe this is now 3 or 4 years ago and got bit by one of these cutoffs is suddenly a lot of my plugins stopped working and it's like, well, shoot, now I have to figure out, do they have a new version that will at least 
sort of, you know, figure it out, but it stopped me in my tracks when what I really wanted to do was do some recording, not have to fuss around with downloading new versions of plugins and downloading, making sure, you know, why did they stop working? Um, so like the, the, the security part of me that says always update your OS to the latest and greatest and, and make sure that you're, you're up to date and you're not vulnerable in that way also bit me here is like now some of my plugins that I used in my, uh, audio workstation, which I use logic pro, um, stopped working and it was so frustrating. It's like that, that immediately killed my creative velocity, um, in terms of build uh, recording anything that day. And it's like, at that point it was, yep. Okay. I am going to get another machine for all my personal stuff that is free to update whenever I so choose. This machine will be my music machine and it stays behind because then I can control one. I can at least control when things are going to break because it's not necessarily never been updated. I still do update it, but I'm a lot more um, careful. And thankfully, I mean, because the new machine that I have for personal use and, and not music work is also a MacBook. I can actually, you know, I, I do have the software installed on both so I can test it out on the, on the one. Okay. It works. Okay. Then I'll go to my other machine. That's the production machine and actually do the upgrade without that way. I don't find out by accident later. It's like, Oh shoot. I wanted to record some music today and I can't because you know, OS update X, Y, Z broke it. Um, so that's definitely been a challenge and why I split the two split the two there. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about um, not necessarily about Logic Pro in its entirety. And if, if for anyone who's listening, if you're not familiar what Logic Pro is, it's a digital audio workstation. It is um, a way for musicians to, you know, record their audio or record their piano playing or, or keyboards, um, get it into tracks, apply effects and master and produce um, audio. So getting it ready to ship off to say Spotify or these other kinds of streaming networks or, or, you know, into formats that you could press on a, on a disc or, or create a CD or what have you. And there's lots of these out there. Um, before logic pro, I used, um, FL studio, fruity loop studio, um, which I loved, um, still love it. Um, but there were some things in it that, um, it's very much tied to looping and, um, more kind of the precise electronic kind of, kind of music. And it's great. Um, some of the stuff that I was doing is a little bit more freeform, um, piano, um, relaxing kind of piano. And there were some features in logic pro that I, that compelled me to switch, but I love fruity loops and you know, there's other ones out there too. Um, but what got me into this world is, uh, the topic that I want to talk about today is there's this concept in logic pro called MIDI effects. Um, and MIDI effects uses this, um, has a plugin called scripter and scripter funnily enough is based on JavaScript. I just looked that up cause I had not heard of this before mm -hmm. and that kind of blew my mind <laughs> and it, it looks like it kind of goes back quite a ways, right? It like does. at least 2015, if not earlier, yes. right? It's been around for a while, um, which also blew my mind because I didn't find out about this until. Uh, but maybe a couple years ago. And so what actually got me thinking about it was I bought a new um, hybrid piano. And for anyone who's not familiar with a hybrid piano, it is a physical piano. The keys, the hammers, the strings, those are or, well, not the strings, the keys, the hammers, the wood, all of that's, you know, like an upright piano. What's different is that it's 
replaced internally, the sound producing capability is all digital. So it's like a digital piano in an upright piano's body. And um, sounds great. Love it to bits. Um, but I tie it up with um, another piece of software when I'm recording called Piano Tech. And it has uh, several plugins um, and other things that can go into your digital audio workstation, or you can use it standalone. And it's like piano synthesis. Um, so it's like um, there's their sample libraries. There's also uh, what they do is they mathematically model the sound of a piano. So it's really playable. It's really lightweight. It's not like gigabytes of data. And I love playing with that because you can kind of get some um, pianos that sound more historical, uh, which suits certain classical pieces more than our modern piano does. And so um, was playing around with that and looking around on some forums. And a few of us came to this conclusion that the bass sounds great when you're playing the piano as it is in the speakers setup that it has. But when you go to, went to MIDI, something about the velocity wasn't translating terribly well to, um, to piano tech and to the DAW is like, it felt like, I don't know what the software looks like, so I could be totally guessing, but it almost felt like there was some compensation in the firmware when you were not sending MIDI data to like beef up the bass a little bit and lower the treble a little bit just to, to balance out the sound. But that didn't really come over in the MIDI velocity. And so um, they had in a different system, in a different digital audio workstation. Um, so what we're talking about today with Logic Pro scripting does apply to other DAWs. They just have a different form of scripting. Um, they had come up with a way to, uh, as the MIDI data was coming in, they would they would amp up um, the the velocity of the the low notes, and they would decrease the velocity of the high notes. And I thought, well, I've been noticing exactly the same thing, um, but I use Logic Pro, not what you were using. Could I translate this in it? Does Logic Pro have scripting? And lo and behold, it does. And that totally blew my mind because it's like, I didn't know this was a thing. This is super super cool. And so um, get into there and you find, then I find out it's JavaScript because I think this other one that they were using, maybe it was contact. Um, there's another system out there that does scripting, but it's definitely not JavaScript. It's a, I, it's some other language. <laughs> I a thousand percent expected this to be Apple script. <laughs> which... oh God. Thank, thank goodness it is not. <laughs> oh, I know. I just, I, it's really hard for me to get excited about something when it's right? Apple script. And then I look like, oh, oh, JavaScript. It's JavaScript. I felt like it, I felt like it was going to have to be Apple script or some C language. Or, yes, you know? exactly. And some of these other ones do kind of look a little C ish, which kind of put me off about it at first. And it's like, eh, I don't know about that. Um, but this being JavaScript is like, okay, so I can, I can reuse my work skills, you know, the language that I use for my employment and everything else. I can do it in my, my MIDI stuff and it can do some really cool things. And the stuff I'm using it for does not come close to this. I tend to use it for augmenting or modifying the data as I'm recording it, but you can do so much more with it. You can have it generate new, new sounds, new, like an arpeggiator, for example, you could build in this. You could have it change pitches as you're playing. You could have it applying, um, you, you, like have echoing notes that come after you play. Like there's so much cool you could do with this and I'm not scratching the surface. And just in terms of the general output of what you can script here, 
are we talking about purely scripting MIDI or is this also getting into things like, what do you call them? VSTs or Apple has their own word for this. Um, uh, audio units. Audio units. Yeah. Is that, are, are you able to make those with scripts as well? Or is this purely focused on the MIDI side? So this is purely focused on the MIDI side. Um, and this is, this is one of the catch catches that I have is I love logic pro and what I'm using it for is just to augment some of the stuff that I'm playing or to tweak how the velocity happens. And it's very much a personal thing. Um, but I would love to be able to do the same thing and apply that, say, if I've got my iPad with me and I could do that with audio units, but there's no like direct translation from here. So like if for these scripts to be running, I have to be running Logic Pro. The script has to be to be set up in Logic Pro on that track and then it's doing its thing. I dearly would love there to be a JavaScript powered similar thing for as an audio unit, because then I could install it on my iPad. Now, oddly enough, there is a scriptable audio unit on the iPad. It is not using JavaScript. <laughs> what? Uh, okay, let's play the guessing game. Is it Lua? It is not Lua. Uh, what else would you script in? Um, is it it's Python? I don't even think it was Python. It, <laughs> it was very much a almost a custom DSL is, oh, is how I would frame okay. it. So in some ways that actually might not be bad, right? Because now you could say I've got MIDI data. If I have a language tailored to MIDI, there are some things that could be way easier mm. than in JavaScript land. That is not at its general purpose. It is not thinking about MIDI, especially in the way that Apple does it. Mm -hmm. um, and so there could be benefits to that. And so that's one of the things down the road that I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to look at that because it would be super cool to be able to have the same um, capabilities, but maybe I'm using my iPad and some of the instruments that are on my iPad. Um, there's like Korg module and other ones where it's you have your, your own synthesizers and instruments, but I still might want to apply this velocity shift to it. Um, and I could have the audio unit in the middle there and it would be perfect. Um, so I need to investigate that more, but I kind of wishing like, I've heard that building, writing audio units on iOS is like a pain in the rear because there, it's not well documented. The thought crossed my mind is, well, I'll just build an audio unit that has JavaScript that uses the same JavaScript interface that Apple uses for Logic Pro. And then I could just port my script over. <laughs> that has not happened yet. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I don't trying... know if it will happen. <laughs> I'm trying to dig up some documentation on the uh, scriptor MIDI thing. Um, I don't even know what to call it. So from what I can tell, just trying to Google for some docs on this stuff, because mm. I thought it'd be nice to, to link in the show notes. And yep. just, I guess anybody who's wanting to get started with something like this is going to end up Googling it anyways. Mm -hmm. I, I landed on a Apple support document called use the scriptor MIDI plugin in Logic Pro. Yes. Is, is that the thing that, we're talking about yes. here it's it itself is a plugin the it is scripter. itself a plugin it comes with logic pro um or if you're using main stage i think it'll work in main stage as well um but it's just one of the things that comes with it um and it comes with a, a few um a few extra scripts as well so like it's not coming to you bereft of content um, there's a few things you can add in there and experiment and you can even learn from because the code is just the code is literally part of your project <laughs> So you can go look at the code that Apple has written to say like, oh, I liked that I, that feature and kind of play around with it. But that's part of the challenge is like it is not insan insanely obvious how to get that one, that this is a thing two how to get started. And three, once I'm building code, how to actually do what I want it to do. 
Mm. Um, and this is the this is the frustrating thing I have with a lot of like iOS documentation with Apple is often I'll find, yep, that's probably the method I want to use or the class I want to use. Is there a is there documentation for it? <laughs> there's there's maybe just enough to kind of hint that this is probably what you want, but not really enough to take you very far. And so I will say Scripter's documentation is not that bad. It's not that great either, um, which frustrates me to no end because I think there could be a much larger um, ecosystem around this if it were not so not not quite so painful to build if that makes sense yeah and if you have a link to that documentation at some point um it'd be worth linking it just for the show notes i'm having a yes. beast of time finding it <laughs> as a matter of fact like just clicking on their own pages like apple like eventually links you to there's one thing that says use the script editor so yes. i click that and it's a 404 so oh, it actually uh, does work for me so i don't know that that's a, maybe i have mine cached <laughs> Yeah, uh, maybe we're talking about something that's been sunsetted. Uh, <laughs> oh, that would not. be horrible. Surely no, not. don't. T- you can you can pry the scripter out of my cold dry, cold dead hands. <laughs> this <laughs> is the, where you go and air gap your your production machine immediately. Yes, You're receiving no further <laughs> updates whatsoever. Um, I will live and die by this by by this plugin, even though I'm complaining about its lack of documentation. Um, let's see if uh, continuity. Nope, continuity failed me too. Um, I was going to copy and paste it in. Um, there is a spot if you go, if that page did not 404, there's another paragraph down where you can say, um, it gives you, see the Scripter API overview for Scripter API documentation and code samples. But this assumes that the page does not 404 for you. Oh, <laughs> four, okay. 404 hey, for you. That's a tongue, not a tongue twister. It's a lip twister. 404 um, for you. Um, that's a, that's a great, um, yeah. What if we were to make a little website that was like a make your own cutesy 404 thing? It's got sort of AI generated. So it's cool. like kind of pick a few parameters and then we'll generate you a 404 page. <laughs> 404 for you. Cute templates and uh, and all of that. We'll, we'll have to go register that. <laughs> okay. So I, I'm curious because you and I have talked a bit about um, before um, in our just regular lives, non-podcasting lives about... Yes. Um, the sort of state or non-state, as it were, of like JavaScript as mm-hmm. a scripting language for Mac OS in yes. general. Oh, man. So they, they announced uh, JavaScript support back in 2013 or 14 mm-hmm. um, as a first class language for scripting the Mac. And I, as far as I can tell, kind of promptly forgot about it. Uh, and so oh, and it's, it's been incredibly, uh, well, let's say at first it was frustrating and then it was just disappointing. And then mm-hmm. it, it became a, a non-entity in my life. And that, that's, that's a bummer because I remember, remember when it was announced how excited I was right? about having a way to script that wouldn't require me to do Apple script. Yes. And (laughs) support for that in the form of like documentation or just sort of like JavaScript sort of working the way one would expect JavaScript to work in some cases. I don't know. I I never found it to be quite what I expected. And generally, at some point, I had more luck scripting Mac OS by finding uh, (laughs) Python modules. Right. Mm-hmm. That would let me do really cool stuff with the, there's like a there used to be this objective C to Pi thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, remember, I remember the name of it, but it was it was incredible what you could do with that. And I was 
more willing to learn Python, honestly, than Apple scripts. And, and I yes. found I got more mileage out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And to that point, I will say equally as frustrated and disappointed by Apple's support of JavaScript um, as a scripting language on, in Mac OS, because I was, I've always looked at AppleScript and I'm sure there are people who love AppleScript and no offense to them. I look at it and my brain just goes, what? Um, and I just cannot, I just can't think in AppleScript. I, I go straight to a JavaScript um, idiom and like, how would I do this in AppleScript? I'd be Googling for everything. The frustrating thing I found was one, lack of documentation for any of this capability in uh, on Apple's sites. You could find lots of AppleScript documentation, but next to no JavaScript documentation. And then the idioms that they used were not JavaScript idioms, or they didn't feel JavaScripty. Mm-hmm. And so even once I found, oh, okay, I need to 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 get this object or or call this method, the end result was always something that felt very much still like it was trying to wrap around AppleScript or whatever underlying technology they were using. And it did not feel like JavaScript to me as I was writing it. It's like the syntax was JavaScript, but the, 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 the sentence structure and, and the information that I was trying to convey felt very much not JavaScript. And then lack of documentation is like, it was the next impossible to actually find anything and like, Oh, I want to do this. And there's, how do I do it? I don't know. <laughs> if you knew the Apple script equivalent, you could figure it out but I didn't know the Apple script equivalent. I will say, thankfully, that the scripter API here in Logic Pro, even though it's using JavaScript, and it probably, it, my guess is it's using the same JavaScript engine under the hood. It, I wouldn't imagine that Apple would have two separate JavaScript engines. It does not have that quite that same problem. One, it's way more limited. It is not trying to automate your entire operating system. Um, but it's also f- more finely tuned to working on just a certain set of, uh, a certain data structure. So it's finely tuned to work with MIDI information, um, the notes that you play, the timing, the velocities, um, that you're playing on versus trying to automate your entire system. So the idioms still feel like JavaScript. I'm accessing, for example, when I'm, uh, in the scripting utilities, you can set it up so that it gets a an event every time I play a note on my keyboard. And mm-hmm. along with that e- uh, note comes an object and I can access it access it like I would any other uh, JavaScript object, change it up. If like if I want to change the velocity, I can do that with regular JavaScript. It doesn't feel alien to write, or it didn't. I, back when it's, you, you said this has been around for a little while, it has. And so it's been around when JavaScript, <laughs> before JavaScript modernized, is that mm-hmm. <laughs> before ES6, right? Yep. So there's, there is now some weirdness um, when you're doing this because I want to write let and const and all of these other things. And the JavaScript engine is fine with that. Um, it is totally fine with you using modern JavaScript. All the modern iterators and all that stuff are there. Okay, I wasn't expecting you to say that. I know, uh, it's weird. None of, and none of their samples use it. And so. none of their samples use it, but there right. are some catches. So there's a few things in in some of their samples where you have to um, declare that uh, you need access to certain objects. So like if you want access to some timing information, you have to set a variable that says, I need timing information. So this is where it starts to deviate a little bit. Like if I were a node, I would say I need to require in a library, right? So require timing information or something like that. And here you have to say var needs timing info equal true. 
you have to do this at the global level. <laughs> Don't do it inside a function. It will not work. And you cannot use letter const. So wait a second. That's like a required <laughs> global to sort of set some kind of behavior yes. for the entire script. Yes. And you have. Okay. Huh. That's the weird. Th this is where it starts to go a little bit weird. Most of the JavaScript is totally fine. Um, once you get a get around that, like the event handler has to be called a certain name. So like you can't just have an arbitrary function name to handle the MIDI events. It needs to be called process MIDI uh -huh. um, so that it knows which method it's calling. Um, so, so that that one that I'll say sense. might be a bit more precedence because certainly React makes you do that. Right. And Next.js, which I've been playing around with, we'll talk about another time, also makes you do makes that. Makes you do that. But with pure <laughs> basic variables, I'm not sure if I've ever seen that. It's it, it feels a little bit weird. I'll totally honest. And yeah. so I'm, you know, me being me and trying to do modern JavaScript, I'm saying, oh, OK, you just I'll, I'll accept the weirdness of setting a global variable. But I'm going to use let and const <laughs> because this is what I this is what I'm familiar with. And I'm sure it gave you a kind error message that said, dear Carrie, no, you can't use const for this particular variable. It did not. Oh, really? No. Really? Tell us it, more. It, it is totally fine with accepting this. It just doesn't give you the object that you need uh, for the timing information. <laughs> How nice. <laughs> yeah. So all the code that you're writing of, oh, I need to get, you know, which which uh, beat I'm in, which which subdivision and all of this stuff, which um, one of the things that I was working on needed that because I needed to be able to check how long after the previous note had played uh, to, to, to apply a transform to the current note. And so you have to have timing information. And it's like, OK, I need to get that into the script. And I, me being smart, it's like, well, const is the same thing. It's technically not. It's uh, There's differences in JavaScript semantics there, but const will do. Const var needs timing equal true. Run the script and nothing happens. And the this is the other side of scripter is, um, I don't know about you, but I've gotten very familiar with like Chrome dev tools. I love the dev tools in the browsers. It's I can step and stop and debug and uh, and step yeah. into all of this cool stuff, right? Mm -hmm. You don't get this <laughs> in the Logic Pro scripter. You 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 have um you have an editor. It is syntax highlighted, so it's not totally in the dark ages. And you have a console, and so you are back into the days of console logging things out to the console to figure out what didn't work. Um, and so. Through the process of elimination, I finally realized maybe they're using var for a reason. I switch it to var and poof, it, it just lights up. All of a sudden, it, it is doing its job. And it's like, <sighs> so now I have comments in my scripts. Slash, slash, do not change this to let const. Logic Pro will not work. You know, Future the script me, will not there's work. a reason why I'm doing this. Yes. And it's not by choice. <laughs> it is not by choice. Everywhere else in my script, I have modern JavaScript. I've, I'm using, I'm iterating over arrays and mapping them down, reduce, you know, and all that's not even particularly modern, but I'm let const everywhere else, arrow functions. Those all work fine. As long as you don't use at the top level constant let, um, which just, when when I when I discovered that it's like one of those you know head a uh, hand to head moments or head desk moments like oh man yeah so that's when where you fix it and then move like kind of yes. close the computer for a while it's like I'm done computing for just a second <laughs> yeah that's amazing that that occurred to you I I think the the space between my doing this seeing it's broken and figuring that out would have been pretty long yeah the last thing you ever expect is that oh I need 
in order for this to work correctly, I need to use var. Yes. And <laughs> it didn't, it, it took me a little while. Uh, I'll be honest. It took me a while. It's like, why isn't this working? And I think at some point, maybe did I do just a, um, you know, I'll start over and, you know, maybe, you know, go look at their examples and it's working fine for them. But oh, by the way, all their examples were sitting with var. And so I begrudgingly said, okay, I'll try it. And then it lits, lights up and it's like, are you kidding me that this is the thing that turn, lights everything up? Um, and it doesn't have the nicety of saying, oh, yeah, there's a you know, there's no linting that says const var needs timing information is not going to work for you. And mm. so that's the fun stuff. Um, so I would encourage anyone who wants to get into Logic Pro MIDI effects scripting. Bear that in mind, but also bear in mind that's the how would I frame it? The interface into the scripter is still built on, you know, is still used to JavaScript from way back when compared to what we're familiar with if we're in modern browser land with ES6 and above. Um, and so that can reset expectations a little bit. But inside of it, once you're past, you know, setting the configuration, you can use everything as you would regularly. So one of the things that I do because you don't have a debugger, you just have the console is I will use string interpolation all over the place because you're tracing like the notes that I'm playing to the console to say like, what was the, the vol velocity before? What's the velocity after I apply my change to try and debug? Is it doing what I want it to do? So string interpolation works beautifully. Like that's so great. I don't have to have lots of pluses and, and quotes around there. Um, string padding, pad end, pad start, that works just fine. <laughs> So it, you get all the modern conveniences, except for a couple of these, uh, a couple of these things. Well, well, I think it'll be a useful contribution to future, the future of humanity, just to be able to note this somewhere. So right. we'll definitely, <laughs> I'll, we'll have to call out specifically um, which property or sorry, variable name in the global space that we want to be careful with in the show notes. Um, I think that, you know, kind of coming back a little bit to, you know, um, you mentioned something on the fact that just how generally fit for purpose this is uh, or how tightly it's been built around the use case. I think, you know, kind of some of the weirdness aside, it is pretty impressive because as, as someone who's played with the, you know, I've played with the web mini API when it was still like in its infancy, I think when it was like a alpha or beta in Chrome um, and that's cer certainly an interesting thing, but it's part of a browser context where yes. there's so much else going on yes. there. And I, I don't know, I think there's something nice about just having having a JavaScript API that sort of speaks the language of not just MIDI itself, but the context in which you're using MIDI. So, you, for example, and again, I'm just looking at the doc. So these things could not be great under the hood for all I know, or they may be wonderful, but they have a, a timing info object. Mm, yes. And it's really neat because timing info, it looks like has like all these sort of niceties that you would hope. Mm -hmm. would exist, but might not if all you're doing is using uh, MIDI as IO. Yes. So precisely. instead, like this API seems to be aware of not only MIDI as IO, but it's also MIDI's being used in a context context mm -hmm. where there is tempo and where there is, um, you know, sort of a beat structure to be quantized yes. to and all of that kind of stuff. So I don't know, if, is is that sort of the area? Have you, have you played around with that? Like how, how much mileage have you gotten out of it? Yeah, so what I was, uh, one of the things that I was working on um, depended upon the delay between the same note striking twice. So um, 
whether or not it should change the volume of it or whatnot. And if you were just doing straight up JavaScript, you'd say date.now or whatever, and I'll just compare milliseconds. And it would probably work. But you have to, when you're in logic or any other DAW that's doing scripting, the hard part to kind of wrap your brain around a little bit is that the events coming to you are not necessarily 100% real time. Like MIDI is giving you, it's already quantized to a certain um, time slice. You might, you're, you're getting like one note at a time, whereas I might play a chord and, and a few notes are, are technically at the same time, but I'm seeing all those as a sing, as a stream of notes. And so date.now might work fine, but maybe actually it might not be enough resolution because you don't actually know exactly when your script is getting called because it's in the pipeline of everything else. Like mm -hmm. there's a whole, there's a whole pipeline that logic is sending through there of, Oh, the note has played, send it to this plugin, send it to through these effects and everything else. And so I was stuck for a little while, honestly going, how am I going to write a plugin that depends upon the time between two notes without depending upon date dot now? Cause that felt wrong. And thankfully, timing info does exactly that. And it took me a little bit uh, a time of figuring out what it was actually meaning. Like, is timing info running when you're not playing, not recording? That was one of my big questions. It's like it makes sense when I'm recording or when I'm playing back because it uh, there's a there's a, you've got your tempo set and you've got the beats getting laid down. But nicely enough, it also works if I'm not doing any of those things. Like, so logic is still maintaining an internal clock over time, even if I'm not actively recording. And because sometimes I'm just noodling at my keyboard and I still want the effect to be running, but I'm not actively recording. And so I found the timing info page and it, there's a ton of stuff in there. Um, what I, what the biggest thing for me that I really like is you're guaranteed um, because your script is working not just at record time. Your script is working at play. It's it's part of the pipeline. So it's working at play time. And so you're guaranteed to get back the same timing differences, the, the same um, note start, note end, all of those times in playback as well. So your plugin doesn't have to think about that you know, date.now is, you know, these these events may be slightly off, off or, you know, date.now may not be sufficient resolution or whatever, you can rely on the DAW's timing information for repeat uh, and you'll get the same behavior. And so that's the really nice thing with, with that. Plus, if you needed to, to do things like based upon time signatures, mine was based upon time, you know, milliseconds. So I didn't have to worry about so much about the time signature, but you could get information about, you know, where am I in the quantization aspect of it, uh, the subdivisions? Am I in beat one or beat 10? Am I in the, 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 um, half of the measure, the third, you know, the third part of the measure or whatever. And so there's some really cool stuff that if I were doing this, like to do like arpeggiation or echoing, and I would want it to be ideally in the same tempo as what I'm playing, mm -hmm. then I could use that information and say, okay, then I'm going to schedule a new MIDI event out in the future, which I also love that this is capable of doing. It's not like just modifying what you're currently playing. It can schedule events in the future and you use the same construct to tell it, okay, in the future on beat XYZ, subdivision of wherever, play this note at this velocity, at this, 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 uh, this, how, uh, whatever you want to look at. There's all sorts of uh, things that you can give it. And so you can schedule out a whole, I could play a, a, a C chord or what have you, and it could build out the arpeggio for me and play that in the future 
quite a long ways in advance. I don't know. I, there's, I'm sure there is an upper limit here. There is a practical upper limit. You can't use the infinity <laughs> keyword to. Yeah, right. There's no infinity here. Okay. <laughs> but um, you, you could, you could um, have a sense of your context of of the project that you're working on. I'm maybe I'm doing at 100 beats per minute or whatever, and then line up the tempo to fit or the arpeggio to fit versus one of these that. I'll just assume, you know, I can make an assumption that I'll play a note every quarter of a second or whatever it is. But if I'm, that will only work for this current script that I'm working on. Like it'd be a very bespoke, bespoke script. If I want something that's a little bit more generic, fits into the context, Logic Pro does provide just enough information there to make that possible, and so which in, is really in, handy. In a world where you're trying to build a script like that, you would never actually need to touch date objects. Instead, exactly. you're using... And that that's absolutely gorgeous, right? Yes. That's what I'm saying is like, uh, there's something here, even though they don't do much to like help you dive in or really see the beauty of it. Like that's that's beautiful. Yes. You know, like there, there are certainly times where just thinking again, like echoes or whatever, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, reverb where you, you absolutely do want to, um, kind of sync it more to the, the universal clock, if you mm-hmm. will, as opposed to the tempo, but that could in a lot of cases be the exception to the rule. Whereas a lot of times, if you do want that sort of like echo or reverb effect to go on, like you don't want it out of sync with the beat of the rest of the song. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that it's really neat that to have a scripting language that just speaks in that language of music as opposed to, well, we're kind of shoehorning music into this computer world. It kind of like steps back and says, no, music's the starting point. It needs to sort of work within that. And again, my guess is based on, you know, you're kind of looking at these different timing info properties of things like tempo and, numerator and denominator and uh block end beat and start beat and all of this and like i'm guessing somewhere in the mix of all that you can do the math i guess it's not maybe they're not handing handing too many like you know super user facing functions to you you kind of have to do the homework on it but at least it's not tying you down to a javascript date object which on its surface doesn't sound ideal oh yeah it's far far from ideal like i i it felt wrong to me to think about, oh, I'm going to have to use date dot now because it like I, I had been playing around with Scripter enough to this point. My previous scripts didn't need timing information. But at this point, it's like, oh, shoot, I can't necessarily rely on date not now being equivalent to when I played the note because Scripter might be calling, uh, you know, might be batching some stuff up or it's running through its pipeline. So it may not be exactly date not now probably would not have mattered in terms of the time frames I was looking at, you know, on the order of a hundred milliseconds, it's probably close enough, but it was nice to have a timing system built in that matched the rest of the project. So whatever tempo and timing and everything I had set up there, especially if like your, your project has tempo changes. Now your script would be aware of it at every moment of time and not have to think about date dot now and do the math there. I still had to do some math. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I didn't have to do the, 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 you know, worry about dates and things like that. And it's kind of the same with their MIDI object is it gives you just enough to understand the MIDI object. You don't have to go parsing the MIDI stream. You can, if you want to, which is maybe a little unapple like, like they do, you can get access to the bytes, but it does just enough of the conversion that you can say, oh, when I'm looking at instance of note on, for example, that's when a note is getting played. I don't have to go and inspect the metadata to, to to parse out the byte to understand what if it's a note on event or a note off event or a program change or whatever. 
the MIDI object tells me all of that. And then I can look at it and say, it has some convenience methods of give me the note name. So like when I'm logging it to the console, I'm not logging out the the pitch number like 64 or whatever is middle C in MIDI. I don't remember exactly what it is. I can see that, no, it's C4 because they've provided the utility functions to make that happen, which is also really nice. So um, that's the other reason why I haven't delved into trying to do this on my own because I don't like parsing MIDI data. It's not that terribly complex, but on the flip side, I don't really want to be parsing MIDI data when I'm writing this stuff off. Um, and so it, they give you just enough of that, that capability that you can think in terms of MIDI and think in terms of timing, but still use your JavaScripting knowledge. As long as you avoid var on a couple of those things or mm -hmm. avoid let and const on a couple of those things, you're in fairly good hands. And there are some other surrounding, like there's some other sites out there that have gone another step further and kind of like become like the proper documentation for these things um, because Apple is not great at their own docs. Um, so there's been other people who've, who've gone and explored further to actually refine all of this out. But I've been, I've really been enjoying my time with it. And um, it it is very much custom purpose, custom built for this purpose. It is not a, you're, you're not going to do anything else with this JavaScript script. <laughs> In any other instance or context, it will not make sense, but it makes sense in the context of Logic Pro as you're recording anything that sends MIDI. Um, now, if you're trying to do audio and audio processing, that's a different story. But if you're doing MIDI effects and, and playing any device that sends out MIDI instruments or MIDI data as you're playing your instrument, it's, it's really quite cool. And I know I've only just started to scratch the surface. The other thing I'll point out, another example of it being purpose-built, is it comes with just enough that you can also write scripts so that they're customizable, not through the script, through the UI. So you through the UI is so, this like one of those like Photoshop like record action recorder things? Not quite. So, okay. um, but there is a there is a corollary. So or corollary that's not the right word. Um, there's a similarity, um, to that where um. Like you, you typically would have that record and you would just kind of record the action and forget it and just play it back as is. But you know how sometimes um, in, in those actions you can have additional configurations, like maybe it pops up the dialogue and says, okay, I'm going to wait for you to put in the blur number and then I'll continue, right? Something similar here in Logic is that you can define a, um, and this is another one of those things that feels a little bit non-idiomatic, um, so you have to get used to it. You can define a an object called plugin params or pr plugin parameters, and it's an array. And in it, you put in you can say I want a menu, which is a drop down list. I want a lin a lin l i n, which is just a linear slider, um, check boxes, things like that, and it will put it into the UI of your of, of your scripting plugin in the DAW. So those are just like. UI components like listed yes. as JavaScript object as properties. As JavaScript objects, okay. you give it you give it the default value. You give it the min and the max and how many steps you have or the the list items. So I'm guessing you're not writing CSS or anything no. for this. You get what you you get what you get in terms of how it's you, laid out. Exactly. This is this is minimal managed UI, just about as minimal as you could get. Um, you don't have control over like the width of the element. You don't have control over the color. You do not have control over how it wants to um, 
like if you have a, a, a wide range and you want to want the slider, the slider is literally still two inches wide. There, there is no control over this whatsoever. Mm. Um, all you have control over is what you name them and the order in terms of the user interface. That's it. No other control um, other than the type. So if you say I'm a slider, then it gives you like a, a number up down control and a slider. If it's a menu, it gives you a drop down checkbox, give you a checkbox. I kind of wish there was one that would give you a dial, which because the rest of or or like a um, a, a mixer slider, up, a vertical slider up and down. Um, they only give you horizontal sliders, which is a little annoying. But you can specify all of this and all of those settings will then get saved to that track at that point in time. So you can have a generic script that you have fine tuned for this particular project. Um, like maybe you're specifying um, a, a velocity correction or you're specifying um, the, the a custom delay echo or whatever. You can have those as parameters so you don't have to go and modify the script every time. You can just have that as part of your project. And now you have a convenient way of changing it when you want to without having to delve into the script itself to keep changing all of that data. So they even thought that far ahead. It's not beautiful UI <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. It is not particularly pleasant UI to use, but it is there enough so that you can build um, scripts and presets. So you can store these as presets in logic, go pick them up, tweak the UI a little bit, and I don't have to go back into the code and change it if, if I don't want to. Um, so it is it is set up in a way to be reusable in the future and slash shareable. Like you could share the script with someone else. They then they could put it in logic. They wouldn't have to go and know JavaScript to figure out how to use it. They could use the UI elements that you put on the page for them. That's really interesting. So there's a I found uh, a good sort of example of this. I think I'll, I'll put in the show notes. There is a uh, tutorial written back in 2015 on Envato that has a call out of a side by side call out of doing like what it might be like to have a a scripter UI in Logic Pro of the arpeggiator. So I'll, I'll just read a short paragraph here. Um, it says a good example of this is the arpeggiator. The stock arpeggiator interface is very clean with a number of options. While on the other hand, selecting the simple arpeggiator preset of the scripter itself reveals a stocky interface with far fewer options. And uh, it shows two screenshots below, which is why I think this is informative for people just kind of thinking through the difference. On one, on one hand, the first uh, screenshot you see uh, is screen capped with, it, it's the, the stock arpeggiator that comes with Logic Pro and the screen, uh, the um, caption is the highly functional arpeggiator. <laughs> Next one is the scripter UI, and it says the less functional scripter <laughs> arpeggiator interface. But yes. I suppose that one of the interesting reasons that that exists is comes back to a point you made early on, Carrie, which is all of this stuff is entirely viewable to the user should they want to do that at, at the source code level because <laughs> it's JavaScript. And so they show you that you can go on to click and open the script in the editor, and it shows you how to build said arpeggiator in JavaScript in Logic Pro. Um, I would have to assume that one of the reasons they included such a sample was to kind of be documentation by yes. example. Yes. This is very much true, is if you're going to be delving into Logic Pro scripting, the samples are um, the samples are the goldmine where you get all of this stuff. 
if you don't read the samples, you're going to be left scratching your head a lot. It's like, well, how do I how do I access this information? You're talking about the timing info object or the MIDI object. Where does it live? What do I name my thing to get you know call back to when I get um, all of these notes in there? How do I like what's the uh, how do I get access to the parameter information and all of this jazz? Do I need what math do I need to do on the timing info object? Reading the samples takes you a very long way. And I won't say it takes you all the way. There's there's some other sites out there that kind of delved into some of the support files for logic that define these MIDI objects and found some like undocumented stuff. So there's some fun stuff you can do in there. Um, but in general, like the samples are a gold mine of information. And so I think that's kind of what the approach that they ended up taking is let's write a lot because there's a lot of them in there. If you look under in logic, it's under the factory settings presets for the scripter. There's uh, tons of them in here. There's like simple arpeggiator, stutter, key range. There's just the and there's utility ones like MIDI logger, like just to see what you're playing. But that also helps you understand how to log this information out to the console. There's a drum probability sequencer. I can imagine what that looks, what that's drum going to probability. Do. That's this is what it says. Drum probability sequencer. Um, it says it generates a probability sequencer that allows you to set the probability of a step being triggered. Hundred percent will always play. Fifty percent will play half the time. Zero percent will never play. So you can start to get like you know where you're dropping those out every so often. Yeah, I've randomized. seen that. I've seen that in Ableton before too. Okay. Yes. I was now, just curious if that was what it was. If that's what or, it was or something yeah. else. Yeah. Okay. Well, you could imagine like, oh, maybe it's I'm guessing sure at the probability of something. But now the UI on this is horrible. Like it's literally <laughs> six, 17, 17, if I'm counting right, 17 UI components stacked on top of each other. Um, uh, most of them are sliders with some number controls. Um, but it's not like a pretty plugin, like, you, like a lot of the plugins that you would buy as audio units or, or VSTs, like have a really cool looking interface. And I love those. This is not that <laughs> this UI does not come close to that, but it, it, if it served your purpose, like it could really, it could be interesting. Um, but it also, the code in here is immensely valuable for figuring out, oh, how do I work with the timing information object? Because it is very much tied to the beats and and what part of the song you're in um, to figure out if it should schedule a, a step or not. Um, so definitely check the samples out because they're, they're not just like for fun or play. They're actually trying to be illustrative. Um, I just wish they had put more effort in the documentation, uh, documentation side because that's typically how I come to a problem is I have a problem to solve can I do it? Can I accomplish it? And I'll figure that out by looking at your docs versus always looking at the sample code. But there's lots of value, valuable stuff in here. So before before we move on to I have one more thing I wanted to chat about yes. related to docs, actually. And this is actually a, a really good illustration and way into that comment or, or little topic before we close out today. Um, so general highlights and tips, it sounds like one is check out sample source code. Another mm -hmm. is find tutorial links because Apple Docs are only going to get you so far. <laughs> yes. And then a third one is set the magical globals with var and yes. not const or let. Yes. So for someone who's totally new um, and they're saying, okay, this sounds cool. I've never tried this before. Um, someone like me, yet they want to go do this. I'm, I'm not really using Logic Pro these days. So for me, for me, it's it's super interesting. 
but maybe someone's actually this could be a jumping off point for them. And so if they were if we were just to say, go look at the sample code, where would we direct them exactly? I assume this is somewhere in the file system on their Mac, maybe in is it some hidden directory in the Logic Pro bundle or is it somewhere else? It is probably in all of those places. Um, I will say that the one one thing that I will do. Um, so if you are if you're sitting in Logic Pro and you're just looking at a track. Um, so if you don't have a track, one add a track um, so that you get a MIDI effects um, button. And once you have a track selected, there is a MIDI effects button in um, in in your mixing panel that you can click on. And it will have all of these other things in there, like arpeggiators and chord triggers. And these are the pretty ones that Envato is talking about. Like if you click the arpeggiator from there, it's a beautiful user interface compared to what we're what we get with Scripter. And there's little Scripter underneath in there if you click that. And then what it gives you is this really like it's not user friendly. Like if you don't know coming into this what you're what you're doing, the the, the default experience not great. Like it gives you a very basic function uh, editor with a function in it that literally just says event trace event send. All it's going to do is log out what you play to the console. But there's another um, in the panel. It has presets and it just come in comes in with factory default, which does nothing. If you drop down the presets. Down near the bottom of the drop down that you get there, there is a factory pop out menu. And if you go to the factory pop up menu, here are all the samples. And so in the factory pop up menu, you have like channel filter, guitar strummer, um, invert notes, sequencer. Down at the bottom, there's even one other one called tutorial scripts. And they have another 15 scripts in there of examples of how to write these things. So altogether, I would say there's about 40 starting scripts that you could play with. Um, if you click one of those, and it really doesn't matter which one you do, um, if you don't have the script editor open, um, you'll definitely want to click open in script editor. It's in it's above all the parameters. Um, that will let you examine how they're doing what they're doing. Without the script editor, you just get the UI of all the sliders. Um, but then definitely have the script editor running. And this is the other catch that you have to you have to remember to do. It is not applying changes live. So as you change the script, that means nothing. <laughs> oh, no. It me <laughs> you have to <laughs> click the run script button. And that reruns it in the JavaScript context. And that tells logic that it's essentially the sa it's a save button. Um, but if you don't hit run script, none of the changes you do mean anything. <laughs> so, And it will not warn you about this, of course. Um, there is no little asterisk up there saying, hey, by the way, you need to do something about this. So make a change, hit run script, that applies it. It really should have been called apply script. Um, that will then tell logic, this is the new version of the script. This is what you should be processing. And that takes effect from that point forward. Um, and so like, if you want to see what it, these examples do, they'll work out of the box. Like you don't have to click run script right off the bat just selecting the preset loads whatever was in the preset. But if you then make a change to it, that's when you need to hit run script. So if you wanted to change the UI parameter, for example, on the control to say, like I'm on MIDI to play, I, I picked a really bad example on my computer, but if I wanted to rename a parameter, I'd have to type it in the code, hit run script, and then the parameter will change. Okay. And there's lots of yeah. good ones in there. Yeah, well, with about 40 of them, that seems like, you know, it, once you figure out how to open one of them, going into the file system and figure yes. out where that file is will get you all the other ones in a more convenient way. I can imagine myself opening up each one of them and 
well, I don't know if you can open it in VS Code or whatnot, but I'd probably want to open them all in something just to take a look and see, like, at some point, just what's the breadth of what's possible here, just to get an idea. Um, yeah, and it looks like, I mean, just from those 40 examples, it looks like there is a fairly large, um, there's already, like, to get your creative juices flowing, there's a lot that those 40 are already giving to you. And I would imagine, like, you know, that that would easily uh, get you ideating about oh what other cool things are possible um i was just just quickly browsing to see if there were like a logic um plugin for vs code logic is a bad word to search <laughs> plugins mm. in vs code because there's a lot of things that have logic in the title um <laughs> but yeah it i that that i do agree like the editing experience not the best thing if logic crashes on you and you have forgotten to hit run script or run script and saved the project, you might lose your script. So there is a little bit of this going back to the, um, I don't want to say the old days, but you know, the days where you're a little bit more paranoid <laughs> about saving things. Mm. So as I was building my script, I had text, uh, text, ed not text edit, textastic open on my other window. And I would copy and paste it over in there because it saves automatically logic pro. Not so much. <laughs> You know, I've heard of people doing that by scripting uh, occasionally into something like BB Edit, which will never lose anything, apparently. Yes. And it's just like automatically. So if you get desperate enough or paranoid enough, which I wouldn't blame you because that sounds terrifying, especially for something <laughs> as hard as what you're like kind of yes. getting into coding MIDI and stuff like that, like kind of writing a, a little script just to like kind of look over in your I should script do that. editor and just like s toss it into something yes. that, that's going to be more responsible about managing your changes or not even your changes, but just the current state of things would be yes. awesome. Yeah. Oh, I should, I wonder now this is, this is the question is I don't know how um, inspectable logic is. Could I automate that? But I will say this, like I, I learned this lesson the hard way. Like I'm bringing it up because it did crash on me and I lost, I, I it was probably a good hour of work. Now, Having done the work, I could recreate it because most of that work was like scratching my head, figuring out why isn't this working? So like solving the problem took the hour, writing the code didn't take the hour, but I was really annoyed when, because then logic came back up. And usually, at least in my experience, logic has been reasonably good at like saving rescue copies. So like it, you could start off from a known good spot and it had, but it had done so about a good hour or two. <laughs> before that man, I, our, like, I guess man. because it's working with audio rescue copies have to be done like less frequently in that case i don't know but like that yeah an hour sounds kind of unforgivable like what yeah i i mean again i, I was annoyed <laughs> yeah that's that's slightly shocking i'm not sure last time i've had an experience like that yeah and i, I the, the worst part of it was is i was getting to the point of like you, you know that little itch in your brain where you're thinking I should really save this because I've been lucky thus far. And maybe it's just because I don't trust. Like, I've lived through the experience of, you know, way back when, when I, when I was learning programming on these, you know, 20 years. No, it's been more than that. Many, many years ago um, where like you had to save on a continual basis and there was no auto save. And if you didn't save, it was, you know, you running your program might crash the computer completely because that was the only thing running. So you got very much in the habit and it was twigging in my brain. Oh, I should, you know, I, I'm asking for trouble by making one more change. And I made that change and it blew it up. <laughs> it's like, 
I even knew in the back of my mind that, you know, I was overdue for saving and it got me lesson learned, save often and not just the run script thing, but like save the logic, the logic project. And I even went the step further as copy and pasted out on a textastic as I was making changes because I want the latest version over here somewhere. Uh, so there's got to be a better way to do that. Like the editing experience, not VS code, far, far from VS code, but it still is. Um, I'm willing to put up with that a little bit because it's the, the possibilities are so such. Well, a, yeah, so, and, so cool. and look at the end of the day, like well, there's one way to do things. And, you know, this clearly has its merits and demerits, this whole scripting thing in Logic yes. Pro. But the reality <laughs> is it's the only way to get the job done mm -hmm. if you want to script Logic Pro. Um, so, you know what, like uh, try to highlight the great things. And it sounds like we, you know, we definitely touched on some of that. There's some really cool stuff in here, but mm -hmm. also beware of the rough edges and we i've tried to make a list for the show notes just to call out for new folks kind of getting into it yeah the, I, the, there are some spots where there, here the, where there should be the the phrase here there be monsters or here there be dragons um there are spots but once you learn them then it's like you're not apt to repeat them um and hopefully the show notes will give you fair warning to avoid making some of the mistakes that I made. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought on the way out, um, you know, this is a really cool intro into Logic Pro scripting, which again, I, I was never really had thought about before, but really cool to see and to do a little bit of a dive into. Part of all of this, of course, is we talked a lot about the, the documentation. Yes. And, um, you know, I thought like I would call out uh, some follow up we got on on Mastodon. Uh, yes, you know, you've been on there a while. I just sort of finally saw the light and tried joining it. Um, and our sort of mutual friends uh, and uh, colleague uh, Pablo Klaska has gave hello, us some, Pablo. Hello, Pablo. <laughs> gave us some really kind follow up on Mastodon and kind of talking a bit about docs from, you know, I think it was probably the last episode where we got into talking a bit about Tailwind, yeah, Tailwind. CSS. That's right, not a little bit, but a lot talking about Tailwind CSS. <laughs> and he called out something really good. So I thought I, I just like read out since he was kind enough to write something, kind of read out what he wrote and just kind of affirm uh, kind of the opposite of this, which is what we saw today in the Apple documentation for Logic Pro Scripts. Um, so here, quoting Pablo, um, great episode and great topic. Thank you, Pablo. That's really nice of you <laughs> continuing along. Um, I have found that it was the incredibly good search experience on the Tailwind Docs page that convinced me. Mm -hmm. With this search, even if I don't know how to do it with Tailwind, but have an idea of the CSS I'd use, I know that I'd be able to quickly find my answer. And that is super valuable for getting started, especially yes. since I'm very much classic CSS, no components frameworks <laughs> trained. So that's yes. uh, uh, directly quoting from his Mastodon. Um, I won't say it. His Mastodon thing that he said on Mastodon. Um, what's the word that you're supposed to use? I don't want to say toot, um, damn it. Oh, uh, toots? Yeah, toots. <laughs> it's so humiliating. But anyways, um, yes. so yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> but either way, like, uh, Pablo, it's a really good point And something that I have been thinking a lot about uh, in both my kind of work life at the moment, there's a lot mm -hmm. going on with our own docs. And certainly, Carrie, you and I have talked a lot about doc search over the years <laughs> yeah. uh, professionally. Um, and, you know, when it's when it's when you can rely on it, it kind of fades into the background often. And when it's not there, you're like, it's not as far as I can tell with Logic Proscript docs at all. 
like you're kind of left to just like clicking links and bookmarking like you know you're just trying to save little you know kind of make your own trail or breadcrumbs to find things in a different document somewhere like i guess you can get the job done that way but it's certainly not great and in a world where you have Let's say, for example, like we just talked about like Logic Pro, um, if you want to script Logic Pro, as far as I know, there's one way to do it. This is the way. So a little bit like it still would be nice to sort of go the distance and like offer a great experience in the docs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, kind of at some point it's like take it or leave it, I suppose. Um, whereas in a world like CSS frameworks where there's just so many of them, um, you know, a developer experience really will um make or break the level of adoption that your project or product gets. And this is something, um, you know, we're, I was recently, uh, I think I mentioned this last time, but I I had a chance to get interviewed by journalists uh, and it's in the articles in devops.com. I'll I'll look up the link for Hmm. them. I talk a little bit about the future of developer experience, um, you know, and there's so much that could be said on developer experience and like, why are we talking about it more these days? Like in the last, you know, three to five years than, than maybe we used to. Um, but, you know, and I think it's in some ways when we come out and talk about DevX, we want to talk about like these really kind of like big sort of future looking things. Yeah. Um, but how often do we talk about things like searchability of docs and how great that can be? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, docs themselves sometimes get short shrift, but then like the feature set inside of docs even more so. Yeah. But I think it's such an important thing that Pablo called out um, that, again, we're thinking about a lot in my day to day job that I feel regardless of whether I'm at work or doing hobby projects. Um, when I'm learning something new and that I definitely feel and that will impact my sort of desire to adopt something new. Big time. Um, Yeah. And so this is just a really good example. If you want to see like the anti-pattern, go check out Logic Pro (laughs) scripting docs. Again, you know, I I don't want to beat up on them because like there's, again, like I, I just don't know enough about the world, that world to know much about it. But I would say on its surface without being searchable, Without it's having really a few hard. things like references or yeah. anything, it just gets too hard. Well, and 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 I'll be totally honest: is um, this this last script that I did, which is part of why it's so fresh in my mind, is because I've done a couple of them, and this last one was just you know uh, you know now that I'm on sabbatical for a month off of my day job, I have some free time, um, and it was a little bit of a lift to say, okay, I'm going to commit to writing the script I've been wanting to for the, like the last year. Um, the timing stuff was it was going to be a challenge and all that stuff. And because of my difficulties in prior scripts with logic, um, I knew it was going to be an uphill battle and not, not an insurmountable one, but I knew it was going to take a considerable amount of time, like a good several hours to actually accomplish what I wanted to do. And so I, this is one, this is why it hasn't happened to this point working my day job. There's just not enough hours in the day afterwards. And then on this time, it's like, okay, I finally have the free block, but it was, it took a little bit of effort to to convince my brain to say, okay, I'm going to do it because I knew the very first thing I'm going to run into is, okay, how do I figure out all the timing, the docs? If you know, that's where where you need to go. Like like the timing info has lots of great stuff in it. And that's great for beats and everything like that, where you're very quantized or you're you're looking at which section of a measure I'm in. What I needed was, milliseconds from the last time I played. 
turns out you can get all that and I'll have to go look up the variable so that we can put it in the show notes. There is a perfectly fine variable to do that. It did not occur to me initially that that was going to be the variable to use. And okay, great. That, that solved my problem. And then of course, you know, I found some of these other things like the var const let thing. Um, But that was to get back to the point that was kind of the challenge is knowing that the editing experience isn't all that great. Like there's like, I would have killed for TypeScript like resolution in the editor, like the, the live IntelliSense or what have you, that would have been wonderful. You don't have that in their editor. Um, but knowing that I'm going to have to be digging through the lack of docs rather than digging through good quality docs kind of stopped me in my tracks a little while for a little while. And it's like, okay, how much pain am I willing to endure today to do the thing I want to do? And at some point, this was the day it picked and I got through it. Um, but it's like, I, I, I feel like this could be like in logic pro, like just a little bit more polish on, on the docs have, have the reference. Like there's no clear, like, you know, the references that we're currently used to, if I go to, to, um, react or or you know one of these libraries where i can get the classes and see all the properties and methods exactly it, i tend to refer to these as class and method references i'm yes. not sure what others call them but to kind of differentiate them from like you know uh api references yes. so like an sdk or that kind of thing like class and method references mm -hmm. where chances are you've probably marked it up with something like js doc um yes. or the like and and spit it out in a standard format mm -hmm. and i would love to have those and some other websites do kind of get approached that like so i ended up finding a few other ones i'll, I'll contribute them to the show notes or it's like, okay, this is where you need to go to get the real information because the original docs are not going to tell you or make it obvious unless you've read through all the samples. And I had a thing in mind that I wanted to do. I didn't want to read 50 samples to figure out how to do it. Um, so I think I feel like in some ways, like the ecosystem around the scripting plugin could be so much larger if the developer experience was a good one, if the docs experience was a good one, if searchability was right up there and, you know, I didn't have to drill into three pages to find the quote API reference that is still not really a complete API reference. There are so many things that it wouldn't take that much effort to really make this, you know, a, a pleasant experience. Um, and maybe other DAWs have a better scripting experience. Like I'm not familiar with some of the other DAWs to, to know, but, to your point about uptake and am I even willing to dig into it? Part of the reason that I accepted it, the faults of logic is, yeah, this is kind of the only way to do it. So there's not a whole lot to compare to, but on the flip side, how many MIDI, or how many people who use logic who work in the MIDI world have been put off from using it? And I think that would be, that's a little sad if the experience is preventing people from um, actively using it. Yeah, so because I'd it's say, so cool. Yeah, it really is. And um, I'm a huge believer in these kind of things because of just the empowerment that they give people mm -hmm. just at, at all levels of the sort of user stack. And, yeah. you know, I know it's cliche, but I guess I, I would kind of end my thoughts on this by saying, you know, dev experience is user experience at the end yes. of the day on multiple levels. And Precisely. it's not just, for example, like sometimes what that can mean, of course, is, um, you know, whatever whatever you feed into the developer experience is going to come out the other side of whatever they're creating for your mutual in, uh, users. So mm -hmm. in this case, it's the creatives using Logic Pro. 
that are the mutual users of the developer and of course of Apple. And, and so if the developer experience isn't great, whatever those mutual users are getting is going to be that much worse because of it. Right. So that's one, that's one level. Another level, of course, is dev experience is user experience because devs are users at a certain level too. Yes. And it matters what their users uh, experience. Um, you know, or sorry, it matters what they experience as users. Like yes. they should be considered first class citizens of any given ecosystem. It's and and there are certain things like just apply some search, just put out some references that really shouldn't be considered that difficult to do. Yeah. I would say there's a third vector that's somewhere in the middle, which is your end users could eventually find themselves in developer land happily if only your dev experience was better. Yes. Um, and and that's one where quite honestly, like there's just all sorts of human potential on the other side of it that is easy for me to get excited about, maybe easy for one to roll their eyes at said excitement. But the reality is that you just don't know what doesn't happen when you don't empower people who might be just on the edge, just mm -hmm. on the edge and they don't even know it. But if your dev experience is, is great, um, that leads them into dev world where they might even not know where they're going until they're there. Exactly. So, you know, your dev experience is user experience has at least three different levels to it. Um, whether it is what is being created for your users, what your devs are experiences experiencing as users and users kind of moving down the stack more towards developer and what mm -hmm. that has the potential to manifest in the world all is unlocked through, um, you know, just even basic developer experience hygiene, not even the, the, the sort of highfalutin bells and whistles that we all may aspire to. <laughs> no, it's so true, though. I mean, how many, I mean, especially at our time at work, I, I know we've both heard the stories of someone who has become or, or gotten into the world of development because of the gateway of scripting, you know, Photoshop or some other InDesign or, or some other application. I think like these, the, these DAWs have very similar um, avenues because I, I mean, yes, there's, there's, you know, all the automation that you can do in terms of real time and, and tracking your recording and making sure that's saved with the project. But then you add on this layer of scripting and I know we talked about MIDI here, but I'm sure there's lots of other opportunities for other things that could be scripting with audio and other things like that. You could like, what does that unlock? And like, then, okay, you've discovered that you have a passion for, oh, I can do these cool things in my, my music, but this is also now a skill I have learned. You know, I've had to learn JavaScript to do this. Now I can take that who knows where, maybe I'll use that in my website. Maybe I'll use that, uh, in some other portion. And like, there's, there's so many avenues that this unlocks that um, it, it actually kind of reminds me of <laughs> of nothing techno nothing related in terms of techno technology. But uh, we were doing some Christmas Christmas shopping for one of my um, nephews, and there's always the kind of question mark of will they enjoy this particular thing? And because it's not cheap to get, um, but it's like a total question mark: Are they going to to use it? Like, and you don't want it to be like something you get, it's used once, never touched again. The challenging part with this gift was that if you buy the cheap gift, it doesn't really show the entire um, ecosystem or the results of what you, you know, why you would pursue this as a hobby or as a passion in a good light because it's so hard to use or it doesn't yield good quality. And so in so many ways, that first experience can be so negative that that person may never continue to pursue 
what might otherwise be an interest they would really enjoy doing because that first experience was so rough and so difficult and didn't yield good results. And I feel that's applicable to the developer experience. If you make your stuff so hard to use or don't factor in these common, you know, the basic, you know, searchability, all of these kinds of things, how many people are you actually turning off from what might be something they would otherwise actually excel at? That's so well said and a perfect illustration um, that we can all relate to of the classic I'm bad at math kind of yes. thing that people <laughs> love to say. Uh, I've probably said that in a former life myself. I don't consider myself bad at math anymore. Um, but when I was younger, I did. And I think a lot of it's just because our, our many of our first exposures to math were painful mm -hmm. um, and a lot of, let's say, negative reinforcement. <laughs> um and uh, so you just assume that, well, that's a thing I can't do, but of mm -hmm. course it's not. Um, and uh, for, for most people, you're perfectly capable of it, but you, you had a, a terrible first run at it that you mm -hmm. had no option but to submit to and right. endure. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> obviously developer land can be just like that, whether it's at school or like dealing with bad docs or just like whatever else it might be. So, um, but really awesome illustration in a in a thing that's in a in an area carry that's less triggering for a lot of us i think which is purchasing toys for children at christmas although i am triggered <laughs> officially yes. triggered because i need to go do that so i think exactly. this is where we'll we'll call it for today i'm leaving triggered but not because of logic proscripting uh i'm safely avoiding that bullet <laughs> but i think you you've opened my eyes to something really interesting here I think at some point, there's a few other topics I'd love to go down a path with you on. Yes. One is just programming music in general. I've, I've done some of this in the browser in the past, and uh, there's some interesting things there. Maybe we'll get to that one. Another one would be just a fun sort of uh, long, deep dive on developer experience and things that you're excited about yes. in the future. Um, you know, I got to say my piece in that article recently, but there's always more than can be covered, uh, you know, in a 30 minute session that gets, you know, kind of translated for wider consumption. Um, mm -hmm. So I, there's lots more to that I'd love to say. And I, I know that you have just like a tremendous depth of experience there. So maybe at some point we'll, we'll come back to that topic, hopefully, hopefully sooner than later, because there's just so much good stuff. Oh, I know. I, I, I definitely am looking forward to all of those things. And I know we could, we, we, we can definitely fill the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Here's to us encountering better developer experiences out there. And in Absolutely. the meantime, I'd rather be scripting. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'd Rather Be Scripting. If you love scripting, terminals, Z shell, JavaScript development, and other random technology tangents as much as we do, we'd love to hear from you. You can always leave a review on your preferred podcasting platform, or you can reach out to us via the social links on our website, I'dRatherBeScripting.com. Until next time, I'd rather be scripting.